So good morning, everyone, and welcome to this week's Fireside Chat. I'm Lisa Stearns, and uh, with me is Dr. Tim Cross, our leader, Senior Vice President. And we just want to thank you for joining us each week for these Fireside Chats. We really do appreciate the participation, and we hope that this is helpful to you in some way. Um, we'll be discussing an update to our COVID-19 guidelines and taking your questions, of course. And we'll also be discussing the most current issue facing our country and our communities. Um, but first, just a few reminders. Remember to please keep your audio muted during the chat. Um, if you do have a question for Dr. Cross, please use the chat function. You can post that question publicly or you can send it to me privately. And we'll try to get to as many of those as we possibly can. A recording of this session will be made. Um, and it will be posted on the coronavirus website, which you can find um, at utia.tennessee.edu. So Tim, um, we do usually use this time to talk about COVID-19, and of course we will get to that here in just a minute. But first, our world has changed once again since the death of George Floyd on May 25th. Um, I know you wish to share your thoughts um, how, on how we as an organization can contribute to the solution in this matter. Do you want to share some of your thoughts? Yeah, thank you, Lisa, and, and good morning, everyone. Thanks for joining us once again. And, and I do think uh, it's, it's entirely appropriate, if not absolutely essential, that, that we start today by thinking about uh, what's transpired over the last 10 days and in particular about the incident that triggered uh, this reaction, uh, the, the unnecessary death of, of George Floyd. Uh, you know, I, I don't know about you, uh, I'll, I'll be honest, when I heard about that incident um, 10 days ago or so, my first reaction was, oh, I'm so happy that wasn't here and I'm so glad that it's not something that happened in our community, our, our state. But, you know, I think, uh, that's exactly why we've got the problems we've got, is that uh, folks like me have responded that way. And, and what we forget, what I forget, I'll, I'll keep this personal, what I forget is, is I have those thoughts is that, well, maybe it didn't happen in the Institute of Agriculture, maybe it didn't happen in Knoxville, Tennessee, maybe it didn't happen in the state of Tennessee, but it did happen in the United States of America. It happened in our country and it happened to an African-American who in, was entitled to the same justice, the same equity that we all expect. So I, I feel like uh, from that standpoint, then we, we see the protests that have occurred, the marches that have occurred and continue to occur and, and other events going on. And those are not just in, in the big metropolitan areas either. I know there's been small rural communities uh, where, where there's been a lot of public expressions of, and outcries. So, you know, I, I think uh, sometimes we also then tend to focus on, well, those marches led to violence, they led to clashes with police, they led to uh, some unruly behavior. But uh, we've also observed, I think, over the past 10 days, the violence has subsided, the, the, the real uh, confrontational classes have, clashes have subsided. But what has not gone away is the really uh, national and even worldwide recognition that this needs to change. Uh, we do need to uh, address equity and, and justice for all. 
And, and so I, I feel like uh, maybe, at least in my life, this ought to be a turning point. It ought to be a time when we say enough is enough. Uh, it's been, been a long time that we've struggled in this way. I don't want to pretend I can in any way, shape, or form understand how our Black friends, our Black employees, our Black students feel. Uh, but I think it's time we make sure in the Institute of Agriculture we're part of the solution. You know, our tagline is real life solutions. So this is one of those areas we need to be uh, providing solutions. Uh, so that much I think is really clear to me. Now, again, I'm, I'm trying to speak personally, but I also hope that we as an institute can embrace uh, those, those thoughts and philosophies as well. And I believe we can because since uh, the deans and I sent out the message earlier this week, I've had many, many replies uh, of support, of encouragement, positive response uh, to that message and to the notion that, you know, words are great, but we need to act. And so that's, that's really, of course, uh, what, what uh, is on my mind uh, currently as well. So uh, I think uh, the, the question then is, how do we act? What do we do? How are we going to organize that? Uh, we've said for years, years and years, you know, uh, uh, eliminating racism is everybody's job. Uh, that's that's well and good, but uh, how are we really going to go about doing that? Uh, it'll take a commitment from each of us. I'm not going to roll out some big plan today and say, here it is, this will solve it, uh, this will fix us forever. What I'd like to do is continue to work with the deans, our department heads, directors, other uh, leaders to flesh out a plan and then engage the whole institute in responding to that plan and helping to improve it and then uh, really embrace this uh, as, as one of our major initiatives, just as we've embraced initiatives like genomics, like uh, uh, One Health and so forth, we can get behind this with equally, if not more enthusiasm, more commitment and, and really make a difference. So uh, we'll, I'm, I'm committing to make sure we bring to you some ideas, some plans that not uh, simply say we're gonna do a training, uh, we're going to write a pledge and, and we're going to call it good. I'd, I'd like it to be much more substantial than that and something that doesn't happen one time and then we move on. This needs to be something pervasive, something uh, embedded in all of what we do uh, and embedded in each of our expectations. So that's going to take a little more thought than I've had the, the time to give it in the last few days. But uh, again, I feel like uh, we are at a turning point. Let's make that turn together and uh, let's be part of the solution uh, across our nation. And really, as we've seen recently, even across the world with uh, protests and marches taking place in other countries as well. So uh, forgive me maybe for using this as a soapbox, but, uh, but I'm not gonna apologize for it. Uh, I think uh, it's a time when we need to all get on board and, and make some changes. And I know I can count on you uh, to help in that regard. Thanks so much for that, Tim. And I know you would welcome ideas from people on ways we can um, improve. Absolutely, ideas, personal stories, uh, suggestions, uh, and we probably need to have a structured way of doing that. But I'll tell you right now, if you want to send me a note, I've just started a folder in my email and uh, I am capturing and keeping every message about this and we'll figure out some systematic way maybe to, to make it even more better, more structured in the future. But for now, uh, I welcome your thoughts uh, and, and really do value 
uh, each of your opinions, uh, just as we value each of your lives uh, and each of your contributions to the Institute. Great. Well, thanks, Tim. Um, well, moving on to what um, has also been a pervasive issue, and that is COVID. Um, we've had some updates to our guidelines and phase two of re-entering the workplace. Um, what are some of those key changes? Yeah, we, and um, I think you probably uh, have seen that we do plan to move to phase two on campus. Uh, that, that was expected and, and we have stuck with that. Uh, and so I think uh, then the question is, all right, well, what does that mean? Well, as, as we described last week, largely it means, you know, we can scale up in terms of the number of uh, individuals at the workplace, but it still does not mean everybody back, uh, in, physically at least. So uh, we're going to continue working remotely, uh, but we're going to look to our direct supervisors to uh, indicate, at least on campus, uh, as we enter phase two, if we really do have individuals who can't do their jobs from home, let's reconsider whether some of them uh, might be uh, needed back on, on campus. I know in our extension offices and our research and education centers, we're still tracking things locally to determine uh, whether uh, we move to phase uh, one or two uh, in terms of extension and, and ag research. So we're making those decisions uh, more, more locally watching uh, local data, watching county government uh, decisions as well. Uh, I, I know that uh, as we think about scaling up a little more, a couple of things. One, uh, are we seeing actual declines in the number of cases? And I would say we're really not seeing that as a pervasive trend, but we are seeing, again, county by county, the, the situation differs immensely. And, and so we still have to uh, approach things across the entire state looking at local conditions. I also see that uh, because the across the whole state there are a lot of differences, we're starting to, to receive invitations uh, or even expectations to participate in meetings or events or activities. Uh, and I know we're starting to get questions, you probably have questions about can I attend? Should I attend? Must I attend? Uh, you know, what, what exactly should we be doing? Uh, so I, it, in my opinion, it's really hard to, to provide a one-size-fits-all answer to that. Um, so what we've uh, talked about amongst our executive committee uh, is really the fact that like the decisions related to office staffing, office openings, these discussions really are most appropriately uh, held uh, with direct supervisors uh, who have the most information about the employees, about the uh, opportunities they, they're facing and about uh, the constraints maybe or the, or the restrictions that should be considered. So instead of uh, dictating a set of rules, uh, we really feel like in this case, what we wanna encourage is if you're considering going to a meeting or an event or activity, talk with your direct supervisor about it. And we've revised our guidelines uh, to provide a little framework about that conversation. And basically it includes seven questions. I'll, I'll read them fairly quickly, but, but know that they're in our new uh, revised guidelines and you'll be able to see them in more detail uh, shortly as soon as they're posted. But questions like, uh, if you're the, an employee wanting or, or having been invited to an event, First question should be, do you want to attend it? And do you feel safe 
if you attend it. Uh, you know, I think your 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 voice matters. So uh, you know, let's let's start from there. How large is the group that's meeting, uh, and and how large is the venue that it's uh, taking place in? Uh, are you putting others at risk if you attend? And not only thinking about coworkers, because after you attend, you're going to return conceivably uh, to uh, in, an environment that may uh, result in direct contact with others. But what about your own family? Uh, if you attend this e meeting or event, is that going to jeopardize uh, in any way uh, those, those in your home? Are there measures in place at the meeting or event that provide things like uh, requirements for masks, that, that provide assurance of social distancing, hand sanitation, all the CDC guidance, you know, to what extent have, have the meeting organizers considered that and, and made that available uh, as, as part of that meeting. Suppose you go to a, a meeting that maybe uh, has all the right things in place, uh, you feel safe uh, and so forth, but after the meeting, two days later, it's announced that, that three people were tested and, and, are, and are now positive for COVID-19. If that's the case, do you have uh, you know, an approach or a plan for yourself that you would then, uh, because you potentially were in direct contact, would self-isolate for 14 days? Uh, in, in recognition of the fact that you might have been in direct contact with people at this meeting. How, how are you going to contribute to this meeting or event, or how will you benefit, or how will the university or the institute benefit from your direct physical participation? Does it warrant, you know, uh, going through all this, or is it really something that, uh, you know, you can get the information some other way, or you can present the information some other way? Have you thought about alternatives? And then finally, if, if you can participate from a distance, why would you want to attend in person? Uh, so those are questions that we think, you know, make sense. There may be other questions to ask as well. But I, I think uh, the way to approach these, these meetings, events, and activities is to think through those kinds of questions, think through the answers to those questions, discuss them with your supervisor, and, and come up with a, a decision that's appropriate based on, on those questions and their answers. Uh, and then move ahead. So, and, and these, of course, all pertain to in-state meetings. We still have restrictions on out-of-state travel and international travel. So right now that's still off the board, but for in-state meetings, uh, we're, we're uh, you know, really at a point where I know a lot of those meetings are starting to take place. And we just, uh, I think, uh, need to use this approach to guide our participation in such meetings. So I, I know there may be a lot of questions about that. Uh, Happy to, to discuss those uh, a little bit further. Uh, so let me uh, also talk then about uh, the other restrictions that I mentioned, uh, out-of-state travel and international travel. Those are remaining in place uh, and they currently are, are through July 31st. We're right now, I think, trying to determine will they remain in place beyond July 31st? Will they be changed before July 31st. Uh, really difficult decisions to, to have absolute clarity about what's best there, but uh, we're, we're looking at those now. In the meantime, I know I've had some questions from uh, some individuals who have said, well, I really need to go to this meeting in some other state, and it starts on August 2nd. Should I plan to go or can I plan to go? And in cases like that, I think, again, 
right now, I, I'm not in a position to say, no, you can't go, and neither is anyone else, I think. But it's, it's also, I think, a situation where I would uh, delay making uh, financial commitments to such a, a trip as long as, as possible. In other words, uh, if even, even if it might uh, you know, require uh, an increased registration fee by delaying this, I would put off registration fees. I'd certainly put off any airline purchases and so forth until we get closer uh, to July 31st. Expecting that, you know, the, the situation may change. And if it does, and you're not allowed to participate in, in that meeting, then there's already been substantial expenses incurred. Uh, it's going to be hard to, to turn the clock back on that. So what I'd ask is that we be really diligent about seeking uh, travel authorization in advance before making any financial commitments. So uh, submit your out-of-state or international travel request, even if it's beyond July 31st. Submit that now or soon, and let's uh, have those conversations uh, with your uh, uh, director, your department head, and the deans, and, and try to make a decision uh, in advance before uh, any financial commitments are made. So that's where we're at on that. And there's some slight revisions in the, in the guidelines that speak to that as well. If, so again, if you got questions, I think it's your direct supervisor you need to be in touch with. If you have questions about how to submit that uh, uh, travel authorization, uh, you can check with your business manager, your regional office, uh, uh, HR uh, manager or finance uh, manager within your unit uh, to get uh, help with those questions. Uh, as far as phase two, the other thing folks have, I know I've heard is, well, you say we're going to have more at the workplace. How many more? Uh, you know, and, and I think that is really hard to answer, but I also think saying, well, it depends is not a good answer either. My, my uh, perception of phase two is that we're going to approach somewhere around 20 to 30 percent of our workforce on campus being present uh, back in the office, if you will. Uh, that doesn't necessarily hold for an office with two or three people. Uh, that, that, those percentages probably don't have any meaning there, but overall I expect we'll be moving towards potentially 20 to 30 percent of the workforce back on campus throughout the course of phase two. So that doesn't mean necessarily day one of phase two. We, we have to have that many uh, individuals back, but I think over time we'll be moving that direction. Having said that, I, I still want to emphasize, uh, first of all, uh, protection for our most vulnerable employees, anyone with underlying health risks, anyone uh, at, at uh, uh, years of age closer to mine, uh, and so forth. Uh, they need to be the last to return, so no change there. And we need to continue to remember that one of our uh, commitments is flexibility. So those uh, that have no daycare for children, uh, really are not in a situation where it's going to be very conducive to return. Uh, let's, let's work with those individuals just as much as possible. Those individuals that maybe have someone living with them that, uh, that you know, return to the workplace might put someone in their home uh, in, at higher risk as well. So, so that hopefully captures uh, some of the high points uh, with regard to phase two. Again, we'll have the guidelines posted uh, today and send out a message uh, with with a link back to those guidelines, but they're in the same place they've always been, and the changes are highlighted so that it's easy to see.
Absolutely. And we also need to remember that regardless if you are one of those employees who is returning to the workplace or not, um, the COVID-19 training needs to take place. Yeah, good reminder. Thank you, Lisa. And, you know, I think uh, a lot of you have completed the training. In fact, as of this morning, uh, over 74% of our 2,100 uh, employees have been through that training. So that's great. Uh, really uh, compliment you uh, if you've gotten that training done. Uh, thank you. Uh, it's 15 minutes, and, and I think it, it summarizes uh, everything about uh, the, the uh, practices we're following very nicely, provides helpful background as well. So if you haven't done it yet, uh, when we sign off today, take 15 minutes and knock it out, and you'll be uh, done for the weekend. And again, that doesn't mean just because you've done the training, now you have to come back to work. It, it's really just a reminder that when you do come back, uh, these are the practices that we're gonna be following. And it includes uh, reference to our uh, uh, daily check. So those of you that are coming back to the office, remember before you return each morning, you're to fill out that self-screening form so that your supervisor gets a note that says uh, you're cleared to work. And, uh, and as a reminder to yourself that, uh, that you have done those things that, that we need to be uh, uh, following in terms of practices uh, before we interact with others. So thank you. We'll send out a reminder uh, uh, soon to those who have not completed it uh, to encourage completion. We'll be reaching out to that, the small number of folks who may not uh, regularly use email uh, to uh, enable them to complete the training in some other way. And uh, I'm very confident we can get to 100% by June 10th which was our completion date. So that's coming up next week. Uh, and uh, I, I thank everyone again that, that has completed it. Uh, very, very uh, encouraging that we've got so many done already. And uh, we might remind everybody that Knoxville is sending out a notification that there is a training that needs to be completed, but our employees do not need to do that training as well, correct? Yeah, and they're largely, um, largely the same information. Uh, they were based on the same information really that started from our health science center. So we started with our health experts and putting this training together as every campus did. And, and so uh, no real need to do both. If you want to, to go through the Knoxville training, that's absolutely fine. But uh, as long as you've completed the UTIA training, then, then uh, we think you've got the information you need. Very good. Well, um... This will probably be no surprise, but travel does, it, it's such a, a difficult um, topic and situation anyway, but we, we have had a number of questions related to travel still. So just to clarify, if you travel out of state, no matter if you are going to a remote location, you still have to self-quarantine? Yeah, and, and I think the, the question must be if you travel personally out of state because right. you're okay. not traveling on UT well, business out of state. Right. right so, yeah, and, and we're coming into obviously peak vacation season. Uh, all of us want to get away, I think. All of us want uh, some time to, to wind down and relax. And oftentimes that may be uh, at a location that's, that's outside of the state of Tennessee. Right now, our, our guidelines still require that if you travel outside the state of Tennessee, when you return, you're gonna work from home for two weeks. And I know that um, may, may seem like overkill. It may seem like way, way more uh, restrictive than what's needed. 
we're, we're going to look at that closely as we look at the out-of-state travel restrictions uh, and think about, um, you know, how we handle that in the future. Think about it from the perspective that right now, we don't think from a business perspective, we feel good about you traveling out of state and, and returning directly to the workforce. Uh, so if that's the case, why is it any necessarily any, any different if you travel personally? And I know we can all say, well, I'm, I'm going to uh, Aunt Joan's house and I'm going to be, you know, with no more than two other people. And we're not, not going to be in direct contact with any positive cases. And, you know, I'm going to follow all the right practices. But when you return to the office or return to the workplace uh, or your community, all folks know is, well, uh, Cross went and traveled out of state. Who knows who he came into contact with? And now he's right here amongst all of us. Uh, you know, I'm not feeling real good about that. So we're, we're going to try to keep both the personal, uh, the restrictions associated with return from personal travel uh, are in line with our restrictions on business travel, I think, and we'll try to keep those together. So I know it probably feels like we're penalizing people for, for taking uh, annual leave and traveling out of state. That is not at all the intention. Uh, the intention is to protect everyone whether they're traveling uh, uh, personally or not. Uh, and we'll I, I commit to relooking at that uh, actually next week and, and we'll see CDC guidance needs to be reconsidered. I think uh, the number of states that are actually showing declines in cases is increasing. So, you know, nationally, it seems the, the situation is improving. Uh, so we need to look at that and, and consider whether we can relax that. But for right now, that is still the restriction. So here's, here's the deal. If you're going to travel out of state, just make arrangements when you come back to work remotely two weeks and, and life is good. Uh, we'll, we'll carry on. We've been working remotely four months. So is two more weeks uh, going to really, you know, be a major uh, detriment to what we're doing? I, I don't think it's, you know, much of a price to pay right now. So uh, let's think about it that way work together and, and continue to keep uh, the Institute at, at, uh, at zero uh, positive cases. So someone is asking, does the 50 mile rule still apply for, that would be for work related? Um, yeah, so the 50 mile rule has always been there in recognition of the fact that I believe it's uh, 39 or 49 of our counties border another state and you know, that border, I don't know that coronavirus actually respects borders. So, uh, you know, that, that has always been in recognition that if you're living, especially if you're living in one of those border counties, I mean, it, it, it doesn't make a lot of sense to say, well, you can, you can travel south 50 miles, but you can't travel north 50 miles. Uh, so that's, that was the basis for uh, actually granting uh, out-of-state travel within 50 miles. Uh, for employees of the Institute, because so many of us uh, live in, and work in those uh, border counties. And then uh, a lot of uh, our extension specialists, especially, but also our research and education center employees, you know, in those border areas are conducting programs uh, that may be planned and organized across state lines. So all that said, uh, we have, you know, always said that uh, our approach is, uh, you know, the 50 mile rule applies and, and we're going to respect that and, and continue to say, even if you're, you know, traveling out of state, if it's within that 50 mile range, 
uh, and it's for university-related business, that's absolutely fine. So I, I maybe talked all the way around and didn't answer that question. Uh, make, no, I think <laughs> keep me accountable on that. Did I get it answered or not, Lisa? You did, you got it answered, yes. Okay. But, but here's uh, taking it just one step further. We did have a question about considering the changes made to the students' fall semester schedule, do you see this traveling out of state rule to be extended after July 31st or could that be reconsidered? Yes. So, I think there's a strong case to be made actually both ways on this. Um, I actually think CDC guidance no longer places travel restrictions domestically. So from a national perspective, you know, maybe we're, we're on solid ground to say we don't need to prohibit that travel anymore. But then on the other hand, uh, as a good economist, I have to say that, right, uh, Dr. Aaron Smith? Uh, on the other hand, uh, from a campus perspective, what we're trying to do is reduce the number of interactions between our community and any other community. Uh, and so uh, that maybe calls for restricting travel and saying, look, let's keep our, our little campus community here, if you will, uh, isolated and safe. And then if we don't have people going out and coming back, that's gonna reduce the, the risk of, of uh, bringing uh, virus back to campus. So. Uh, I, I can make a case both directions, and uh, I'm not sure which, which uh, will will uh, ultimately, you know, carry the day here at this point. But uh, I think we'll consider both both dimensions of that and, and other dimensions as well as we look at those travel restrictions. Well, one more on travel. <laughs> um, this person said that they had seen an earlier email that talking about in-state travel, even for work that they would have, people would have to quarantine if they went to what is considered a hot spot in Tennessee. Yeah, that, that is still stated in the guidelines. And, uh, you know, I think at this point, then the question is, well, are there hot spots? And that I think is, we're gonna rely on individuals to make that judgment call. And again, probably work with their supervisors. So, you know, it could be that downtown Nashville is the safest place in the world to go right now because nobody's out and about. You'd be alone uh, if you were down there. On the other hand, if you go to downtown Nashville and, and uh, uh, meet, in a meet in a hotel meeting room with 300 other people who are local residents, I'm not so sure that that would be, you know, a, a wise or practical thing to do. So I think it really comes back to that conversation we had earlier about questions asked, specifics about uh, the, the venue, about the, the benefits of attending, uh, and maybe we should add to that question list, uh, is it in an area that has a large number of cases, uh, and then make a decision uh, on an individual basis about participating in, in locations that have had a higher number of cases. So, um, and I told you there was only one more question on travel, but that's not true. Um, no, that's all right. Tra we're, our business is to be out and to help and to serve people. So travel is part of us. I understand. It's uh, you. Let's, let's ask the questions and try to, you know, work together to figure these things out. No, no problem. So um, the question is posed that um, if we were to do, if we were to travel out of state, for instance, and came back and actually got a COVID test, could that reduce the number of days that we'd be required to be in quarantine? 
Well, I'd probably have to run that by uh, our health science professionals because I think uh, there's, I mean, the reason we've used 14 days as an isolation period is because I believe that's um, seen to be the likely uh, period of incubation. In other words, you could break positive, uh, show positive symptoms anytime from, from day one of exposure to day 14 of exposure. So even if you got a, a test on day one, I'm not sure that gives us assurance that you won't wind up, you know, as a positive case 13 days later. So I'm, I'm afraid the concept's good, but I don't think from a science perspective, from a health perspective, that that, that actually gives us assurance. I think you'd have to get a test every day <laughs> for 14 days, but uh, I, I'll uh, make a note on that and, and ask, uh, our science professionals, our health professionals out at the Health Science Center and see if they have any, any thoughts about that. Uh, I'm, I'm afraid it, it seems like a simple a solution and one that would be good and I'd love to have it, but I'm afraid it, it oversimplifies the, the problem. So um, you talked about the importance of our organization in particular being out and about. That is what we do, particularly in extension. And uh, this person was curious about um, restrictions on face-to-face -face meetings. And I think, um, you know, they were probably referring somewhat to large meetings, but maybe even smaller meetings, even maybe one-on-one -on -one meetings with clients. Um, how do we feel about that if it's in-state? Yeah, I think in-state, actually, that's pretty clear to me. Uh, we can have group meetings right now of up to 10 individuals uh, mm -hmm. and, and actually have never uh, restricted anything beyond or less than that but they should be done with face masks with a uh, six-foot social distancing provided if it's going to be more than a 10-minute interaction so uh, that that can be done right now and and we can uh, follow that with with uh, i think good success and good evidence that those practices really do uh, provide considerable protection saw uh, from Dr. Marcy Souza, chair of our uh, coronavirus task force. Uh, she uh, forwarded me a, a journal article that indicated there had been some assessments of practices like face masks and social distancing. And they were in fact uh, found or, or demonstrated to be uh, very positive in reducing the risk of, of contracting coronavirus. So I know it's tempting to think this really isn't much, it doesn't do much, but those practices can, can make a huge difference. So if we follow those practices, we can have those small group meetings right now. And we'll look towards, as assuming we continue to make positive progress, uh, enabling larger group meetings uh, in the future. So just to clarify, a person um, has asked that, does this mean that if the group meeting is 10 or less, uh, the policy that we had in place before that all programming should be canceled through the 31st is no longer in place that we now can have a meeting if it is 10. Sorry, I, I was, uh, I thought the question was about like staff meetings. Uh, we're, we're still restricting it to staff meetings at this point uh, for those uh, gatherings. So okay. as we look ahead uh, and look into phase two a little further, we'll uh, consider whether we can also start to begin to plan public meeting. So at this point, all of our buildings are, are restricted access. So, uh, you know, having a meeting, but uh, not allowing folks to enter would be uh, a little bit uh, 
self-defeating. So uh, we need to consider both of those things at the same time. So just reversing this slightly, somebody is asking about um, those of us that will be back uh, in offices and workplaces. What about people then who are visiting the campus? For instance, if they are students, visiting professors, um, what, what's, is there a quarantine policy, policy if we are encountering groups of people like that? There's actually a set of guidance on visitors uh, that uh, there's some initial guidance and then there's a group working on visitors to campus specifically. So some of that's still being developed. Uh, and, at, and our research offices have uh, slightly different guidance on visitors as well, visiting scientists or, you know, professionals that we need to have come in to work on equipment and that sort of thing. So there are provisions to, uh, to allow uh, visitors to campus. And obviously, beginning about August 8th, we're going to see thousands of, of folks on campus again. So uh, in about eight weeks, uh, you know, the situation is going to change very drastically. I think for right now, to the extent possible, if you know of a visitor that plans to come, make sure they're aware of the requirements of face masks, uh, you know, social distancing, uh, and, and be uh, ready to uh, assist or, or uh, um, convey them uh, where they need to go. And, and uh, otherwise, uh, I think their presence, um, as long as they're following those uh, CDC guidelines, should, should pose no more risk than, than any of our presence as well. We had an earlier question and, and um, this person states, has there been a revision in the plan and outline phases? It seems even with the latest increase of cases, offices are moving through the phases without really taking the rise of new cases into consideration. Um, if there has been a revision, uh, where can we find that information? Um, so do you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, and I think uh, if, if if the question is about offices on campus, I think we're all in the same boat there. So no, no change there. Uh, the uh, metrics that were being looked at uh, that were on rolling averages uh, have, have not changed. And, and I think the data supports moving to phase two. So on campus, that, that hasn't changed, nor have the guidelines. Off campus, I know the uh, county extension offices uh, we're under the guidance of looking at the number of active cases and whether there have been increases or not. And I think uh, that factored in with what county government uh, is doing in terms of uh, office uh, openings and staffing uh, and coupled with knowledge of, of uh, you know, if, if the county had one active case two weeks ago and, and you know, one day during that two week period, there were three active cases. You know, I don't think that was seen as a spike in cases. That was, you know, largely seen as a uh, very, very modest increase. So uh, I think those are still being looked at case by case. And uh, my understanding is uh, county directors and regional directors are, are talking about those specific counties uh, and the, the data that they're seeing and the incidence of, of COVID-19 in those counties and then making decisions based on all that information. So it's really hard to pick one number and say, 
this is the number we're looking at. Uh, it's tempting to do that, but invariably when you do that, then you realize there's three or four or eight other factors that really ought to be considered as well. So we're trying to, again, be thoughtful and be logical, uh, be uh, quantitative whenever we can, and then ultimately do, do what's right, uh, do what's best for health and safety and, and for uh, delivering programs at the same time. So let's switch gears slightly, and that is, do you have any updates on the budget? Uh, nothing much uh, more than what you've seen in the newspaper. So even, even at this morning's meeting with President Boyd, we really didn't have any, any additional guidance uh, at this point. Uh, what I've seen thus far is that the governor proposed uh, elimination of capital maintenance projects um, from the University of Tennessee budget that would have an impact on, on uh, the Institute. Not a surprise, honestly, uh, you know, that's sometimes one of the first areas that, that are cut back on. Uh, so that's not, certainly not uh, good news, but uh, capital maintenance, we can, we can hold off a little while and do those projects uh, hopefully a year from now. Uh, beyond that, uh, I think uh, the governor also recommended, and this will not be good news, uh, the governor recommended uh, eliminating uh, the salary increases for basically for all state employees, including higher education. Probably not a big surprise or shock to anyone that, that raises wouldn't be uh, included in a budget when they're looking at reductions. So uh, again, this is all proposals. The, the uh, House and Senate both have to pass uh, the budget and, and that has not happened yet. Beyond that, that's all the information uh, really that I've heard or seen that has uh, direct bearing on, on the Institute. Uh, higher education funding in general, I think the, there will be, at least again, the governor's proposed funding would be uh, flat uh, relative to last year. So no increase in formula funding relative to last year. So for our Herbert College of Agriculture, that, that you know, has some implications that basically mean you know, no, no uh, significant increases to our UT Knoxville budget. But uh, that's still obviously a work in progress. So uh, stay tuned. We'll try to keep you informed as soon as there is additional information. And we're, we're thinking about how to handle a budget reduction if there is one. But I don't want anybody to panic and think uh, that, that we're, we're going to be caught by surprise and have to take uh, drastic draconian measures uh, immediately. Uh, we're going to be again, thinking about how to handle uh, as much as possible centrally uh, if there are reductions and then engaging you uh, if the reductions are larger. So I'm not, not sure what, uh, what the future might hold, but that, that's all the information we have as of Friday morning at 11.45 Eastern time. There you go. Well, those are all the questions we have on COVID. I did want to make sure before you, because I know you do have some final thoughts, but I want to make sure that we didn't um, miss Julie Karsten, who uh, earlier in the chat um, on race relations suggested that difficult conversations between the races might be an important step in the solution. Um, just understanding each other better really uh, could lead to some excellent dialogue and and, and better relations. So I just wanted to make sure we acknowledge that and I know um, you would want that as well. So, Great. so thank you for that suggestion, Julie. So Tim, final thoughts as we enter the end of this week. Yep. So, you know, this week I, I think back and, and 
has changed again, uh, and yet we're still in the midst of this coronavirus, even as we're also now um, really working to uh, determine what we can do to make the world better with regard to, to race and diversity. Uh, we've seen uh, cases of uh, active cases of coronavirus uh, in some states increasing. We've seen some states decreasing, some about the same. Uh, that seems to vary every day almost. Uh, so, you know, I think one thing we've got to be careful about is concluding a whole lot from one day's data. Uh, it's really trends that are most important, and, and we've got to remain focused on that. And, and overall, it does still seem that, that the trend in Tennessee is, is uh, at least constant, if not uh, decreasing. So, so I think that's some positive news. Uh, please stay in touch with your supervisor. So much of what we talked about today and last week as well really hinged on, gosh, it depends on the situation in terms of what the questions that we've been considering. And, and I really have uh, a lot of confidence and faith that uh, as we work directly between supervisors and employees, we'll make good decisions. We'll do things in the best interest of our employees, their families, and, and the people we serve. So. Uh, don't don't lose touch. If you haven't been reached out to for a check-in sort of conversation lately from your supervisor, take the initiative and reach out to them. Uh, it's hard for all of us to remember uh, to reach out to others uh, regularly. And if you feel like, gosh, I haven't have haven't had much of a conversation lately, take today to to uh, you know use take some initiative and and reach out. Uh, Please continue to share success stories. Uh, we've got a, a good number of examples, and I know there's still a lot of good creative, innovative ideas uh, being followed out there. So don't forget that uh, we've got a, a, a way to, to uh, uh, for you to submit those success stories. And, and I'm thinking that we're going to use one of our chats here in a couple of weeks to feature some some of those success stories. And we can't feature them all. That's that's what worries me. I don't want anybody to feel like, well, I sent mine in and it didn't get featured, so I guess it wasn't valued. They're all great stories, but uh, you know, I'd like to share maybe three or four of them uh, and, and have the folks doing those innovative programs actually share with you. Uh, I think that might help to maybe, uh, uh, first of all, recognize people doing great work, and second of all, maybe we could all get some ideas uh, from it. So continue to share those. And then finally, uh, please plan to join us next week. We're going to have a special guest. Uh, I won't say too much more about it right now, but uh, it'll be uh, a different uh, sort of guest. And, and I think it'll be a message that, that you'll enjoy, you'll appreciate. It'll be different than anything we've done before. Uh, but I think, again, it'll be one that, that you'll get a lot out of. So uh, plan to join us next week. Let us know if there's questions. Uh, we appreciate all you're doing out there. And uh, stay safe, stay healthy, have a great weekend. Bye everybody, thanks.